before I came here tonight, I did send Rich uh, text, and I said, Rich, uh, you know, where do I park? What time do we start? And what's the dress code? And he said, it's casual. Uh, and I walk in tonight, and the first thing, Rich, the first words that this this love embodying grace empowered minister of the gospel said to me was oh I see you've come dressed as a clown <laughs> which is quite rich coming from someone who wears size 16 shoes so uh, so that's that's where we're at tonight um let me warn you that the last couple of times I've shared this talk um I have seen about um, a half dozen people through the congregation uh, crying throughout it. I don't think that's because it was so awful, um, but because I'm going to be sharing my story, or bits of it anyway. And uh, I am going to be uh, where I can be jovial and jocular about it, but I'll be honest, uh, I'm sharing this story not to glamorise the stuff that's happened to me, but because the stuff that's happened to me sadly isn't unusual. And for some of you tonight, um, this could hit some real trigger buttons. And uh, I'm sure that, Rich, you've got people for prayer ministry and that sort of thing around. I would encourage you, please, if I do say stuff tonight, which is uh, hitting some buttons for you, please be honest about that before God, uh, before those that you feel safe with. And please don't leave here tonight uh, without, uh, if you can, sharing and receiving uh, God's blessing uh, and ministry to you. Uh, so, imagine the scene, you're sat in a car, you're waiting for your children, and you see your children come running along the street to you. Would that be lovely? That would be lovely, wouldn't it? And with them is your dog wagging his tail, so it's a lovely, happy scene. That was one of the worst moments of my life when I saw my three kids, 14, 11 and 9, sprinting along the pavement as I was parked up 100 yards from the house where they'd been held hostage, kidnapped. And when I say kidnapped, I mean locked up, windows and doors locked, the keys taken and hidden. I'd had to take legal advice to find out what can I do. The engine was running. It was seven o'clock in the morning. Their mum was asleep upstairs. My son, the day before, had managed to find one key that she'd missed. And he had hidden it in his Converse boots. He'd put his Converse boots on and he'd gone to sleep wearing them so that he wouldn't lose the key. And he'd messaged me and said, Dad, I've got a way out. Come and get us. And I sat in the car with my sister. And I waited for them to sneak out the house with the dog. They were in bare feet. They left all their things behind. And they ran up the road. They jumped in the car. And they said, Dad, take us home. At that moment, I knew that my marriage was over and I didn't know what lay ahead. It was the most joyful moment because I suddenly had my children back that I thought I'd lost. And it was the worst moment because the marriage that I'd felt God call me to 16 years previously 
was now definitely at an end. There are no books you read to prepare you for these moments. There's no courses that you can go on. When you're in church growing up, as I did, in the most fantastic, spirit-filled and evangelical church surrounded by wonderful, godly, peer Christians and godly youth ministers and vicars and worship leaders and everyone singing about how wonderful God is and you're going to commit yourself to Jesus and you're going to follow him through your life, no one tells you that that might happen. No one tells you that if you trust God, it might actually be monumentally crap. Can I say that? Is that okay? When we talk about persecution of Christians, and we sort of understand, yeah, and I would be ready for that, you know. I'll go and serve Jesus, and I'll be persecuted for Jesus. My trouble was, I'd got married at a young age, 23. I'd grown up in this fantastic church, and I'd believed passionately that God would have a plan for my life. And that plan may or may not include having a wife one day. And I'd managed to navigate all my teen years without ever having a girlfriend. I was a geek. I went from A-levels, maths, physics, further maths, uh, CDT, to university to study physics and astrophysics. I was a hardcore nerd. And whilst I could explain the mysteries of the universe, I was no good at understanding the mysteries of women. And so by the time I graduated from university and ended up in Israel on the mission field, I'd never had a girlfriend. And there, whilst I was serving and living abroad for a year, I met the woman who would become my wife, not Paula. I'll tell you about Paula in a bit. Um, She knows all this, by the way, don't mind. Uh, And felt a powerful calling for us to get married. It was shared by us, it was shared by the community we were living in, uh, and it was sure. And so when we were returning from Israel, I was 20, uh, what was I, 22. My uh, then fiancé was 19, 20. Um, We were fast-tracking, coming home, following God's calling, getting married. But we'd met in Israel, and she'd never met my family and friends. And I'd never seen her outside that context, and I had no background story of relationships. I was just full of gung-ho enthusiasm for doing God's will, and it was all going to be fantastic. Woohoo! And the first time, maybe the second time, that she came and visited my home and my family and my friends, she just told me boldly that she didn't like any of them. I was like, huh? What do you mean? But these are my closest people that I love. I had an amazing family, amazing network of friends. Everything was brilliant in my life. Just so that you understand, I'm going to say a few things now. Not because I want to brag. I just want to paint a picture for you because sometimes people think about broken stories of people who maybe are weak or dim or something like that. I want to just try and convey to you something of the context. I was head boy at my school. I was tight head prop on the rugby team. As a youth, I was into bodybuilding and rugby and nerd stuff. I went to university. I got a degree in astrophysics. Later, I got a master's in theology. 
I've been a school governor. I was selected to be a theological educator for the Church of England. You know, I've done stuff. My parents were, as I grew up, well off. We had just stable, settled, lovely stuff happening. Life was good. And I brought this person into my life, and she said, I don't like those people. And very quickly, she was saying to me, if I'm coming to visit you, I don't want you seeing those friends anymore. I was like, whoa, what do I do about this? I don't know. We carried on, we got married. Within a year, her dad died. And we were living uh, 100 miles away from home. I grew up around here, sorry. And we were studying up at Bible College in Nottingham where I was trained to be a vicar. And while we were there, the first year of marriage, her dad dies. And she's now saying, in the midst of grief, which I want to be compassionate to, obviously, as the new husband, she's saying, I can't cope with you talking to your family and friends anymore. And I found myself having to choose to what I thought was love my wife or do what she was asking me to do, and that is make phone calls and write letters to say to the people who were closest and dearest to me, I'm sorry, I can't be in touch with you anymore. That included my parents, my sisters, the guy who'd been my best man at our wedding. I'm sorry, I can't be in touch with you anymore. And in my head, I'm thinking, God's called me into this. It's going to be okay. This is just going to be a temporary blip blip she's struggling I need to love her sacrifice everything for her because that's what I'm meant to do it will be okay soon it wasn't okay I'm not going to go through all the gory details I'm just going to paint a picture for you that there was brokenness here and I didn't know how to deal with it I've had lots of counseling <laughs> since all this has happened and one of the things that I've learned is it's not all about blaming the other person. It's also about accepting the things that you do wrong yourself to enable those situations to carry on. I was naive, I was young, I clueless. I didn't know how I should best respond to what I was being asked to do. And what happened was I had 16 years of being cut off from my family and my friends. As our children were born, I've got three kids. Uh, when my eldest was born, I was like, come on, We've got a child now, and my family want to know and be involved, and I want them to. And she was like, no. My parents had to agree to be called only by their first names, Dave and Lynn, if they wanted any connection at all. So any birthday card, Christmas card, or present, whichever came, was marked Dave and Lynn. Never Nan and Grandad. Never Grandma, Grandpa. My son was about, I think, 12 when one day he said, hang on, aren't Dave and Lynn your family? I was like, yeah, they're my mum and dad. And he was like, why aren't they my nan and granddad then? I was like, they are. But I'm not allowed to tell you that. And he twigged. When they came to visit on one rare occasion, when he was born, our first child, my dad got out a camera and he was told, put your camera away, no photos. I handed him to my mum for a cuddle and he quickly was taken away and taken upstairs for a nappy change and a feed and then, oh, he had to sleep and then my parents had to leave. 
and it would be 14 years before my mum got another cuddle. Two more children came along, still the isolation being cut off. And all this time, I'm a vicar. I'm a vicar of churches, I'm planting, I'm doing mission. I'm presenting to the world, Jesus is great, follow him, it's all good. And at home, I'm broken. Inside, I'm hurting. Can I tell anyone? No. I'm big, brave Evan, head boy, rugby, degrees, vicar, theological educator. I've got it together, haven't I? I don't even know how to navigate myself out of a sandwich bag. It's a hopeless case at home, and I'm broken. Depression, anxiety, isolation grows and grows. Eventually, my best man reaches out to me says, Evan, where are you? We've not seen you for years. And I said, I can't, I can't talk to you. He said, no, come and meet with me. Let's have beer, let's talk, let's go for a walk. What's going on? So I can't. At that time, I was so scared of, uh, of standing up to my wife that, or coming home into, it wasn't really conflict, it was just oppression. And I could never do anything that was right. It was always... I was belittled or rejected or whatever it might be. It would just hurt, always hurting. And I was afraid of doing anything to increase that. My whole network of relationships were carefully monitored and controlled. And so when he said meet up, I was like, no way. I would, if I went out shopping to go do Tesco's, I would sit in a lay-by with a coffee to extend my time of going home by half an hour, three quarters an hour, as long as I could string it out before I had to go back home. I'd sit and listen to the radio and drink coffee. And Eventually I did think, I, I'm being stupid. There's nothing wrong with seeing my best friend in the whole world. So I went and we talked. And we met up again a year later and we talked some more with another friend who was also a vicar all three of us vicars and talking and I started to share and I was getting flack at home for going I shouldn't be going but I did I was being bold for the first time and as I started to open up they said Evan if someone shared this stuff with you in your study what would you say to them and I say well it sounds like you're in a domestic abuse situation and they said yes you're in a really bad situation and you need help and for all my amazing intelligence and training and professionalism, I'd never once used the words domestic abuse for me. You see, when you are in that place, you create an alternative narrative. You, you say, but God's called me into this. It's going to be okay one day. She's grieving. She's hurting. I love her and it's difficult for her. And I understand that. And you absorb and you create a narrative you lie to yourself and to others and you make it all okay. But really, it's not. And sometimes you need someone else to come and say, look, you need to get some help. And I'd begged her over the years to get counselling. I tried again. Nothing was happening. And so I started to stand up and try and fix it myself and I just made it worse. By now, I was already angry. I was a mess. I was a broken depressed. It wasn't pretty. So in 2013, we'd had lots of talks and she said that she would get 
counselling if I moved again to a new parish where she might feel happy. So it took about six months. I got a great job. We were planning on moving about 50 miles up the road. We ploughed thousands of pounds into the vicarage. We got there. And the day after we arrived, surrounded by boxes, the work having been completed on the vicarage, everything decorated, all new carpets, new oven, new fireplace, everything fantastic. The diocese had built a whole extension on the vicarage for us. The next day after she got there, she said, I can't do this. I don't believe in this God that we sing songs to. I can't make new friends again. I don't want to be a vicar's wife anymore. And I was like, what? I thought that we'd made it. I thought that the promises meant something. I thought that we were going now to be getting help and a new life. And she said, no, I'm in love with another man. And two days after that, she put the kids in the car and drove off to the other side of the country. And that's where eventually they managed to get out of the house and run up the road and jump in the car and say, Dad, take us home. But I knew at that moment that I had to stop fighting for a broken marriage that I couldn't fix. I had to choose between being a dad to my kids or a husband to my wife. Sometimes in life we're faced with impossible situations that we have got no answer to. For me, it was that long tail I've just told you. Lots of other details I've not shared. It might be redundancy or cancer, the sudden death of a loved one or losing everything you own. I just know that I trusted in God once and this wasn't the story I expected. And that building up of years of hurt and control and abuse and isolation and belittling, now, now there was no lid on that pot. In the vicarage we moved into, one day, after one letter, another court summons, I destroyed one of the vicarage's walls with this fist. I was so angry. I was the same vicar who was stood at the front of church trying to lead people in worship. One day I had the archdeacon come and tell me, Evan, your ex-wife has shown me some of the texts that you've sent her. You've got to stop sending those texts. I was so angry with everything and everyone and especially God. And there was no lid on my pot anymore. This was just open season now. And in those days, I went from being a victim to being the perpetrator of, of abuse with words, of being angry, of being uncontrolled in who I was and what I wanted and how I was portraying myself to the world. I had a couple of ridiculous relationships made a huge mess of things. I didn't want to be a vicar anymore. I didn't care about God anymore. I was angry with Jesus. I'd been let down by everyone. They could all stuff it, bring it on. I descended into a spiral of suicidal depression. I'd learned to ride a motorbike, which was awesome, 
I had the best midlife crisis ever. I'd always wanted to ride a bike. She'd always said I couldn't. And as soon as she'd left, I was like, I am riding a motorbike. I didn't have much money, but by heck was I going to buy a bike, and I was going to buy the biggest bike. I learned to ride, passed my test, and when you're not feeling your best upstairs, can I suggest don't ride a motorbike? I know there was one time when I was doing 120 down the M6, just willing the bike to disappear from under me. Every bridge I passed, I thought, could I ride into that brick pillar? How fast do I need to go to make it quick? There were days when I was lying upstairs as the vicar of this parish, in my bedroom, on my own. I remember one guy baked some cookies. He called upstairs. I didn't answer. He left them at the foot of the stairs and just left. I was upstairs crying in my bed. Just broken just monumentally broken. And I didn't know what the way back was. I didn't know how to get from that place to here today. In the end, after 18 months in that parish, I quit. I was invited to quit by the bishop, you'll be unsurprised to learn, and I left. And that all sounds really bad, but do you know what happened next? After all those years of being separated from my family and friends, the only place I had left to come with my kids, who I had full custody of, was home to my mum and dad, nan and granddad. We moved in with them. After 18 months of living there, quitting, vicaring, and starting a new business, working for churches, doing print and creative stuff, we'd started to find a new rhythm, a new way to do life. I'd started to receive healing. I'd started to find who I was again, out of the limelight, away from the pressure. Eventually, I started to be able to sing songs again, to worship like we've worshipped tonight. But before, just three years ago from today, if I'd have walked into this church, probably about song number two, I'd have walked back out again because I was hurting so badly inside. And I wasn't just hurting about the stuff that had happened to me by somebody else. I was so ashamed of what I'd done. I was so ashamed of who I'd become, the mistakes I'd made, the shame I'd brought on myself. The trouble is, when we are in a bad place, you'd like to think that you respond really well. Textbook, classic, tick every box, do everything perfectly. No. When the wheels fall off the wagon, you're going to wobble, you're going to fall over, you're going to skid off the road, you're going to make a monumental mess. And then you've got to live with that guilt and shame. In Jesus, we are set free from all these things. I know the passage you've been looking at is about new wineskins. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. 
I'm sure you heard it this morning, if not before. They're talking about goat skins. When they're new, they can stretch as the wine that's put in them ferments and expands. The new skin of the goat skin expands with the wine. But then once it's done that expansion, it's got nowhere else to go. So if you empty that wine skin out and use it a second time, fill it up with unfermented wine, it starts to ferment, it starts to expand. Old skin is just going to... It's just going to snap, crack, leak, bad. With Jesus, we sometimes don't know the way out of our disasters, but he does. I spent so long hanging on to the past, I wasn't ready to let God do the new thing. I wanted him to make me better as I was. I wasn't ready for him to make me the new person he wanted me to become. It's so easy at the front of church when you're the vicar and you've got it all together or you're pretending that you do to give an impression that to be a Christian just have it all together and it's all going to be good. But to stand at the front of church and say, I'm broken, life's a mess, I'm hurting, I've screwed up, life's fallen apart, so hard. And Jesus had to get me to a point where I could stand here and say that Hopefully so that some others who are broken and hurting can say that too. And here's, I think, what I've learned. I've had to come to a place where God could make me new in order to be refilled by him. If I'd have stayed the same person that I was, resolutely determined to let none of these things having changed me, God couldn't do anything new with me. But today, five years on from all that, I'm married to Paula. We got married just before Christmas. My life now is surrounded by my family and my friends. Friends who I've got like a 20-year black hole now where I didn't have any knowledge of what they were doing or who they were or where they were, but now we're reconnecting and it's beautiful. My sisters my mom and my dad, my kids with me. We're living in our home. We're starting a new life. Paula's lovely. And she's taken on my mess. And she knows my mess. And she's been so patient and so good. And she, I think, models for me something of what like Jesus is like with us when we're broken. He just sits with us and holds us, and lets time heal, and lets his spirit heal. And Paul has been through all the ups and downs with me for the last couple of years, and eventually we got married just before Christmas. So life is good, but how I got here, I didn't get here by design, not my design. I didn't choose my way to here. I stumbled, I crawled, I wept, I fell, I, I got carried by God to this place. And there were times when I could never have seen this possibility. There were times when I was so broken and, and thrashing around with so much anger that there was no way I was making any sensible decisions for anyone. But God held on. God held on to me 
and carried me to this new place. And now today, the old wineskins have been trashed. And I'm grateful for that. And I believe that God has begun that, that newness in me with a new life, a new body, ready to receive his spirit afresh and to start the next half of my life in a new way, much wiser, if a bit uglier, looking a bit like a clown. So why do I share all this with you tonight? Um, because life is a mess for many people. Lots of people have failed marriages. Lots of people live silently with abuse. Lots of people are faced with situations that they have got no idea what to do with. They want to be wise and brilliant and, and manage everything perfectly. But you know what? Most people are not like that. And sometimes we screw up and we feel like a failure as a Christian. But we don't fail with God. Of course, we make mistakes. But he will pick us up and give us a second chance and a third and a fourth and a fifth. He will make us new. He won't write us off. He won't finish with us. And we can never run far enough away. He will always be there with us. So this is what I've learned. As much as we sing songs about the mountaintop experience of the victorious God, I have learned that when we are up to our neck in the swamp, Jesus is there with us. He's not just on the mountaintop for the victory parade. He's down in the broken pits of humanity with us when we are at our lowest, when we are drowning, when we want death to just swallow us up. And he says, I've got you. I'm not giving up on you. Let's keep going. And Jesus will bring us out of the swamp onto the path and we can carry on going. So wherever you're at today, whether you're at the mountaintop or in the swamp, don't give up. If you feel like you failed, you haven't completely. If you are trapped, you can be free. If you are still clinging on to an old wineskin, let go and let Jesus transform you so you can be filled in you. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for all that you have done in all of our lives secretly, abundantly, openly, quietly, powerfully. Lord, however you work, we, we believe and we know that you are working. Lord Jesus, I know that there will be people here tonight who either have struggled or are struggling or certainly in the future ahead will fight, face challenges that will bring them to the brink. Father, we confess that we do not have the answers and we do not live perfect lives. We, we make a hash of things because we're hurting, because we're foolish, because we're pressed. Thank you for your grace and for your forgiveness. Thank you for the promise of new wine and new wineskins. Transform us.
And let us receive into our lives what you are wanting to do for us today, even if we can't see what you're doing. And I pray for anyone particularly who is trapped, who feels hopeless tonight. I pray that as my son found a key to get him out of that front door, I pray that you would bless those who are trapped with a key to get out of whatever situations they are in. Bless them, Lord. Even if they, they can't understand or see the blessing right now, just begin that journey for them to freedom and new life. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.